Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Wednesday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We're a sports ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. We post all of our new podcasts, articles, news and notes, polls, every bit of baseball content over there at EthosFantasyBB on Twitter. If you're not somebody who uses Twitter anymore or never did to begin with, you guys can go to SportsEthos.com and get all that same great content. We got football ramping up, basketball ramping up as well. Uh, We go all year long here at Sports Ethos, so make sure you guys are checking out all the great work across all four major sports and beyond. Uh, we got also got some F1 stuff going on. We have golf. Uh, there's team coverage. There's DFS. There's gambling. There's all kinds of great stuff there. Uh, so make sure you guys are checking out sportsethos.com. We're going to go through a little bit of news, uh, some stuff that's happened yesterday and today. We're also going to talk about a couple of players, one in particular who was doing some pretty incredible things. He was actually on the Hill today, and that's George Kirby. We're going to get to him in a little bit. But the lead story today is that Shohei Otani, so he had skipped a start. Uh, the last time he pitched before today was August the 9th. Today is the 23rd. Uh, you know, they skipped one turn of the rotation and they have like a six man rotation. Usually, you know, a pitcher's going to pitch a couple times in a 14 day span. Otani hasn't pitched at all because he had arm fatigue. They gave him a little break. He came back today. He did hit a home run in the bottom of the first because that's what Shohei Otani does. But he had to leave the game in the top of the second after throwing only an inning and a third due to that same arm fatigue. Now, he not only left as a pitcher. He left as a hitter as well. He had to be pinch hit for uh, as the designated hitter in the game. There's been a couple times this year where Otani has had to leave a start. Uh, it was, I think there was fatigue for one other start earlier in the year, and he also had a blister that he was dealing with a little bit before the All-Star break. But he stayed in as a batter, and that kind of gave you a little bit of confidence. Like, okay, especially if you have Otani in a league where he is both. If you have him on Yahoo, then it's obviously very concerning to have him as a pitcher right now. If you had him in a league where you could use him in both ways, you know, I have him in, a, in an NFBC league where you choose at the beginning of the week, pitcher or hitter. He's been a hitter pretty much every single week for me. You don't worry as much, or you hadn't worried as much up until today because you've been able to actually maintain those at bat still. He was removed from the game as a hitter. So this is very concerning uh, for Shohei Otani, especially considering he's already had to deal with this arm fatigue. It does not give me a great outlook on the rest of the season in terms of how much he's going to be pitching. There's, there's two sides you could look at it from. The Angels, at this point, they have failed miserably in their goal of whatever it, the hell it was, their, even their goal. <laughs> I don't even know exactly what it was to try and show Otani that they can build a competitor around him, that they can go out and make moves at the trade deadline. You know, they got Giolito, who's been kind of so-so, made a couple of other moves, Randall Grichuk and things like that. And I think they expected to do pretty well, but I think they're like, 5-12 and 12 in their last 17 games, something awful like that. And now with Otani out, it's it's pretty bad. There's no chance that he's going to come back. I don't think there was ever a chance that he was going to come back. But specifically now with them falling out of the race, you're going to add a, a, you know arm fatigue, which could potentially turn into some kind of injury there. I don't, I don't know. Uh, the Angels have been kind of reckless with Shohei Otani over the last couple of seasons. When he first came to the States, when he first came to play in Major League Baseball, they were very cautious with him. They weren't 
using him in the field very much when he pitched. Now he DHs, but he's playing a lot of games these last couple of seasons. 157 games in 2022, 155 in 2021. That's a hell of a lot. That is a hell of a lot of games to be going out there, especially when you're also pitching. Last year was 28 starts. The year before that, 23 starts. This year has been 22 starts. Now, he's so excellent, it's hard to actually keep him off the field. I know from the Angels' point of view, it's like, okay, we're not going to pitch our best pitcher. But that's kind of what they did for the first couple of years, and he seemed to mitigate the injury potential and the injury risk uh, a lot better for those first couple of seasons. Now they've kind of taken the reins off. They let him play all the time. Last year, like 28 starts on the mound and 157 games. That's ridiculous. Like a lot of players don't even get close to 157 games, usually in the 130, 140, 150 kind of range. And then you add in the taxing nature of throwing a baseball as fast as he does every five, six days, whatever it ends up being. And you end up with 28 starts last year where he throws, what was it, 166 innings. There's a lot of mileage, not only just on his arm, but on his body in general. So this is a nightmare situation for the Angels. I mean, they just did get Mike Trout back. I don't think he's actually been in the lineup yet, but probably for tonight in the nightcap, we do see him get in there, I would imagine, uh, for this doubleheader. But they have really screwed themselves over here with Shohei Otani. He's not healthy, per se. This arm thing, I don't know what it's going to turn into. Nobody really knows. This just happened maybe half an hour ago, right before I started recording. I saw all the you know, Twitter exploded uh, with all the news that he had been pulled from the game. I think that the Angels just truly have mismanaged this team and this situation with Otani in every which way imaginable. I've said it a million times. They should have traded him before the deadline, got back some value. Now, he's not only you know potentially hurt, but he's also going to leave for nothing. I just think that they couldn't have possibly managed this any worse or misread their own team, their own division, because their division is just ridiculously strong. The American League West, now granted, Seattle has really turned it on recently. They weren't this hot before. But there's a potential that there's going to be three American League West teams in the playoffs this year. It's looking pretty likely that that is going to be the case. Maybe Toronto gets in. Maybe they don't. Maybe the Red Sox get hot. I don't know. But that division, to think that you're going to be able to compete in that division, was foolhardy. To think that they're able to compete in the wild card is just as stupid because of all the strength that they have in the American League ahead of them. You know, even Boston is five games ahead of them. Boston's been nothing special this year. So I really don't know what the Angels thought was going to happen using Otani this much over the last couple of years. Now, this might be nothing. This might be absolutely nothing, and I'm overblowing it. But I don't think I'm overblowing the situation in general when you look at how they have performed these last few years, knowing in their heart of hearts that Otani is gone. They could bullshit themselves, and it looks like they did bullshit themselves into thinking, oh, you know what? We make a run at the playoffs. We end up as an 87-win team and sneak into the playoffs somehow. I don't know what their thought process was. It feels like that was something to do with it. We sneak into the playoffs. We show them that we can you know, be competitive and go out there and make trades, and maybe he'll stay. There was nobody around baseball who thought that there was any remote chance, not that I've heard anyway, maybe somebody did say it somewhere, that he was ever going to go back there. So it just feels like they've not only sacrificed their own team, they've sacrificed potentially his health going forward, and it just seems like they are just – the biggest dumpster fire in all of baseball. You'd think they were the biggest dumpster fire in all of baseball if it weren't for our friends, the Chicago Cubs. What a 24-hour news cycle it has been for the Chicago Cubs. So they fired their general manager, and they fired so hold on. They fired a couple people. Uh, their general manager and their president, I think. Let me just double check that because there's been so much news uh, over the last 24 hours with the team. 
So it was, uh, forgive me guys here. So it was Ken Williams, their executive vice president, and Rick Hahn, who's the senior VP and general manager, both were relieved of their duties. Lead some people on Twitter in the White Sox world to think, okay, they're going to start to you know, rebuild, restart this thing. They're realizing that the, the current um, ownership front office group has been very poor. So what's their next move after that? They bring back Tony LaRussa as what's been reported as an advisor of some kind. He's going to be in some kind of advisory role for the for the White Sox or consulting role, advisory role. I think this is absolutely ridiculous, and I'm not alone in that. Tony La Russa was in Chicago the last couple of years as their manager. It, it honestly feels like this is like a Hollywood script. He was their manager for the last couple of years. He stepped down due to quote unquote health reasons. It seemed like they were just kind of you know, trying to not give bad publicity to themselves. And Larusa, who is a major league Hall of Famer, multiple World Series champion in his time, was one of the he's one of the best managers of all time. If you're looking historically, you know his record, his his awards, his championship appearances, like he's right up there. But he was so out of tune, out of touch these last couple of seasons, and they they got rid of him. Understandably so, it was a good decision to get rid of him, and now they've brought him. Back as a consultant, I think that this is just absolutely ridiculous. Larusa essentially got fired the first time, and they just didn't want to go out there and say that. You call it stepping down. You give him the dignity of you know you're not going to fire somebody who's nearly 80 years old who is currently a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's just bad publicity, even if he had been doing poorly. Now that would have been enough already if it weren't for the fact that we've also had some reports over the last 24 hours about Tim Anderson and Eloy Jimenez both taking shots at the team in, in different ways. So Tim Anderson, um, well, I mean, this isn't really kind of, it's more Eloy who took the shot at the team, but Tim Anderson said, uh, we haven't succeeded uh, to what we know, to, oh, excuse me, let me start that over. <laughs> we haven't succeeded to what we need to be throughout this window, and I think the firings are what happens when things like that happen. A lot of those things rest on the players. We haven't been what we needed to be overall. So Anderson has been pretty terrible this season. He has been awful. A little bit better as of late, but still pretty terrible. The White Sox, just this is kind of like a, a background here. I know I'm kind of bouncing all over the place with the White Sox, but they have traded Chris Sale, Jose Quintana, Adam Eaton, uh, and they got back Yoan Moncada, Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, and Eloy Jimenez. Those were like the big moves. Uh, they also traded Lucas Giolito recently, Lance Lynn, uh, Middleton, Graveman, Berger, a lot of weird moves. And apparently there's another report that Jake Berger, they didn't want to actually move Jake Berger, but it was kind of like forced upon them from up high that they had to move him. So there's just been a lot of ridiculousness that has gone on with this team over the last 24 hours. And there was also the Eloy Jimenez thing, which I'm just going to pull up now. Uh, he was asked if there's pl or players have conversations about stepping up as leaders in the clubhouse. And he said, not really. <laughs> there's no standard set whatsoever for this White Sox team. There's no leadership. There's no accountability. There's no real promise for this team. You know, we talk about how poor the Angels have looked. The White Sox have looked even worse. This was a team that coming into last season was expected to make a good playoff push. Cease, Giolito, and Lynn, all the talent in the lineup, Anderson and Lou Bob and Eloy and Grandel and everybody else in that lineup was expected to, you know, perform. I think they gave their biggest ever contract they've ever given out to Andrew Benintendi. It's been awful. And this kind of speaks to the nature of the team in general. 
there hasn't really been one very strong fantasy asset that has come out of the White Sox this year, other than Luis Robert, who we, if he's healthy, we always knew he was going to be successful. It's always just been kind of the health factor with him, but he's been healthy this year. 33 homers, 16 stolen bases, he's batting nearly 270. He's been the only bright spot. Everybody else, Benintendi has been a huge disappointment. Andrew Vaughn has been pretty disappointing. Tim Anderson, huge disappointment. Eloy, always disappointing. Grandall, again, disappointing. Elvis Andrews has picked it up here, but we're getting to the point where we're even mentioning Elvis Andrews. Like, Moncada, always kind of disappointing. He was, you know, he struggled with health this year, but it leads me to be kind of skeptical going into next year about where and if I'm even going to want to take any White Sox players. It's a cancerous team that doesn't seem to be able to get themselves straightened out in any which way. And we've seen it this year that the performance on the field has been, you know, reflective of what we've seen in the front office, which is a disaster. Where am I going to be taking these guys next year? Not particularly high up. The lineup has been very disappointing. We saw Lance Lynn get absolutely shit on every time out as a White Sox. He gets traded, and now he looks like, you know, the second coming of Nolan Ryan. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But he's been excellent as a Dodger. <clears throat> if you look at their pitching staff, Cease has a 4-5 ERA. Kopech is at 5-1-2. And then you get the Clevenger, who's pitched about half the year. It hasn't actually been terrible, a 347 ERA. But their bullpen has been a disaster. Santos has been blowing saves. I think he blew another one today. Liam Hendricks has been out the whole year. It's just a disaster team that I don't want anything to do with for fantasy, really, unless we start getting extreme, extreme discounts on these guys. And I don't even think we will, necessarily. People aren't going to push Dylan Cease too far down the draft board because of the strikeout upside and because he's only a year removed from having a great season. He'll still go fairly high. In terms of like the you know periphery bats on that team, I mean, I have no interest in Benintendi. Maybe I could buy back into Andrew Vaughn, but people are still going to take Eloy too high. They're probably still going to take Tim Anderson a little bit too high. Luis Roberts the only one that has actual you know interest for me there, and he's probably going to be too expensive, and he's going to be in a range probably you know middle of the second round where I don't even want to bother taking him when I don't really think there's much help around him in that lineup. So this team is kind of just an avoid for me at the moment from fantasy point of view. They need to fire their manager, um, Griffol. He doesn't seem like he knows what the hell he's doing a lot of the time. I've heard it from friends who work in the industry who are White Sox people, that, and they follow the team a lot more closely than I do, <clears throat> that he has just been a total dumpster fire, no connect with the players. Everybody wants him gone. And we're probably going to see that this offseason because this has just been an absolute disaster from the White Sox. But the overarching point is that I don't think I want to draft any of them for fantasy purposes next year. I really don't unless the price is extremely depressed. <coughs> Excuse me. I just can't see myself paying any premium at all for these White Sox. I just <clears throat> I have no interest. I really, honestly, at this point, have pretty much no interest. Let's talk about Ellie Dela Cruz here for a minute. He became the fastest player yesterday to ever reach 10 home runs and 20 stolen bases in a season, 64 games. He did it in one game fewer than Barry Bonds did it as a rookie. This is very impressive. Ellie has hit another home run today, his 11th of the season. He drove in three. I believe it was a three-run shot. I'm not watching at the moment uh, because I'm doing this, but uh, I believe it was a three-run shot that he hit today. I don't understand the hate that I see on Twitter every day for Ellie De La Cruz because he has a high strikeout rate, and maybe it's just because of the expectations. That's usually what it comes down to. If people properly have their expectations set for a player, then you're probably not usually going to be that disappointed unless we're talking like, you know, a Jared Kalanick situation from a couple of years ago or certain prospects who've really floundered. Ellie De La Cruz has come up in 260 at-bats, 10 homers, 20 stolen bases, 46 runs. I love the guy. I love him. We talked about him a little bit yesterday. We had a question on the mailbag about him. But I'm so in 
on Dela Cruz. I don't know if I could be more in for next year. And of course, that will, to some degree, depend on the price. But he has everything going for him. The raw talent is ridiculous. The lineup around him is really good. Probably the best park in baseball to hit, and you can split hairs a little bit there and say it's going to be Colorado. Some people say Fenway. In terms of home run park factors, there's no better park to hit in than Cincinnati. As a whole, maybe Colorado's a little bit better, but they're pretty damn close. Even if you want to say, you know, I'll concede. Let's call it the second best ballpark to hit in in baseball. To go along with everything else, pretty damn good. Now, everybody points at the strikeout percentage, which is definitely too high. It's not sustainable at 35% to be you know, a successful big leaguer. For a lot of players, it's not. But I don't think we're going to stay at that range forever. You know, If you're looking at the minor leagues, he's between 24 and 30%. His first crack at the big leagues being 34% is not ideal, but it's really not that bad. Even if he just chips that down to you know, what he had in the minor leagues, generally 30%, you could still see him easily go 40-40 in multiple seasons. I don't have any problem projecting him as a 40-40 guy. And I did have that question when I, I tweeted about him earlier today. I think over the next three years, we will see that. Look, he stole 20 bases in 64 games. You want to roughly prorate that out over a whole season. You're talking more than 50 stolen bases. The home runs haven't quite matched up with the actual raw power yet, just 10 in 64 games. You give him a little bit of time to adjust to that big league pitching, and again, they'll adjust to him as well. But I think the raw talent and the raw power will win out a lot of the time. you got to remember, he's 21 years old. And he's not being overmatched. 34% K rate, not great, but he's still batting 254. He's got a 361 BABIP, so he will have a higher batting average. Will it be 300? Probably not. Probably in the 260, 270 range, but you're looking at like a Bobby Witt type of fantasy player going forward. Not the highest batting average with great power, even better speed. That's pretty much what you can look at. The only difference is, of course, Bobby Witt now has done it for a couple of seasons, but Bobby Witt's in a much worse ballpark, much worse team situation. Ellie De La Cruz has all that going for him on an up-and-coming young team that has a lot of major league-ready talent already there and producing around him where Bobby Witt doesn't really have that. But that's the kind of comp you can look at for fantasy purposes. Bobby Witt's stat line this year, I wouldn't at all be surprised if that's Ellie De La Cruz's line next year. Bobby Witt, as of right now, and he also hit a home run today, he is sitting at 26 dingers, 37 stolen bases, and a 278 batting average. Wouldn't be surprised at all if we see something like that out of Ellie next season. Now, the question is, where do you draft him? Because you got to project forward. We haven't seen that over a course of a whole season yet. So maybe we're pushing it a little bit to expect that. But the talent is there. Even in the small sample size of 64 games, he has been one of the best players per game basis since he has come up. There, you know, If you want to look at the whole totals, it's a little bit different. But if you look on a per game basis, since he has come up, he is, I believe, a top 50 player. That we want to factor in the natural progression that you'll have from being a second-year player. Now, it, um, you know, product, pro, eh, prospect progression is not always linear, but with the talent, with the ballpark, with all the factors of Ellie De La Cruz, it's hard not to be very invested going forward. Specifically, you know, I think in the high-stakes leagues, he's going to be pushed up a lot because people really aim for upside there. There are some people who will reach a little bit for, you know. The people who reach for Corbin Carroll this year, they were typically very successful. You see that more in those high-stakes formats. He was going, by the end of drafts, Corbin Carroll in the third round, maybe even snuck into the second round in some cases. In my home league draft on Yahoo, I got him a pick 70. So you will see some discrepancies there. With a guy like Ellie De La Cruz, if you're playing on Yahoo, ESPN, or whatever, you're going to be able to get him past pick 50, most likely. And you can look at him as like a Corbin Carroll type for next season. Even though we have more of a sample size of Ellie for this year, 
it has been more successful than Corbin Carroll's initial run at the big leagues because Corbin Carroll wasn't even really given a fair shot last year. It was like 100 at-bats. He wasn't playing all the time. He was pretty good when he was out there, but it was also a much smaller sample size than what we've seen from Ellie so far this season. Long story short, I'm very invested in the long term. I don't know why people go out and hate on him all the time. I think it's just because people want to hate on greatness. I'll tweet out about Spencer Strider about once a week because I am absolutely in love, obsessed with Spencer Strider. And invariably, I'll get one or two comments of people saying, oh, well, almost a four ERA. Oh, all this bullshit that I hear. And I think it's just people don't like greatness. And I think people, for whatever reason, will always try and tear those people down. Like the people who go out and say LeBron James is a fraud. LeFraud, LeFraud. Like just stupid, brainless people. And it's the same kind of people who are going to hate on the Striders and the Ellie Dela Cruzes of the world. So I love Ellie. I love Strider. I'm not going to get started on Strider because I could go down a rabbit hole of being talking about him for an hour. But Ellie Dela Cruz is somebody that you should not be fading because he hits a lot of ground balls and because he has a high strikeout rate. The raw talent is absolutely going to win out in the end. Even though this has been, quote unquote, kind of a disappointing season for a lot of people fastest player ever to 10 homers and 20 stolen bases still looking at about a 760 ops i've seen a lot a hell of a lot worse uh, come up with their first cup of coffee in the big leagues over their first 60 games so i'm not really concerned about ellie Dela cruz but i do want to talk about another player here before i get you guys going and that was george kirby i talked about i mentioned it right off the top george kirby's strikeout rate is something to behold generally it has not been something to write home about and it's been kind of the reason why, well, specifically coming into drafts this year, a lot of people were not so in on George Kirby. Ah, uh, you can get the strikeout somewhere else. I don't know what he's going to look like. Like That was the main point, because there's not really any other point you can make against George Kirby. Everything else is, is beautiful. Like, if you look at his stat pages, everything, it's literally like, oh, my God, you can put a poster on the wall. It's that good. It was really just the strikeouts coming into the season. And... You know, to the people's point in general, it has actually gone down 2% over the course of the whole season. 24.5% last year, 22.4% as a whole this year. Not what you want to see, but that's where you dig in a little bit deeper into the stats. And you see in the second half, since the All-Star break, George Kirby is striking out 26.5% of batters. That walk rate, also, just as a side note, stupid. We'll get to that in a second. 2.4%. Absolutely ridiculous. But the strikeout rate is really big because if you look month by month, pretty much over his whole career, you're looking at 20, 21, 22%, whatever. Then in July, he spiked a 28.6K rate. That is really a huge jump for someone like George Kirby who doesn't really get a lot of strikeouts now. So far in August, it was back down to 18%. But today's start through five innings, he had nine strikeouts. Now he ended up going five and two-thirds. Of course, I pulled the cardinal sin of tweeting about George Kirby during the game, and he gave up a couple of runs after I tweeted about him. So that one we can blame on me. But if you look at everything that George Kirby does, it is so, so impressive. If he is able to get that strikeout rate up into the 26 28% range, then he is going to be a top five pitcher in baseball. And I'll, and I'll reiterate the, the walk rate point here right now. I was looking at all-time lowest walk rates, and there are some years, if you look back at the early 1900s, where it's you know it's very hard to get proper data, and who knows how the hell they were scoring back then anyway, but we have what we have, right? You can go through fan graphs, you can go and you can search, and what I did is I, I think the parameters were from 1900 until 2023, and I was looking at the lowest ever walk rates, and these are for qualified pitchers, so not just one guy who threw 
three innings and didn't walk anybody. These are for qualified pitchers. So the three lowest walk rates of all time. Now, the caveat is that George Kirby does not qualify in an all-time context yet. I'm not sure how that works exactly. Uh, that's a little bit above my pay grade. So he's not technically on the all-time leaderboard. But his walk rate right now is the third lowest all-time at 3.2%. The lowest, starting at number one, Christy Mathewson, 2.7%. Babe Adams, 2.7%. Mathewson, a lot of people have heard of, especially because MLB The Show, there were some cards a couple years ago, I think, and maybe probably this year as well. And then Babe Adams, who I actually have no idea who the hell that is. And then George Kirby at 3.2%. Some of the best control we have ever seen. Now, a lot of people like to use plus stats to adjust across eras, and I think that they can be very valuable. If you're looking at strikeout percentages, I made kind of, you know, I was looking at this earlier this year. Nolan Ryan's strikeout rate for his career was about 25-26%. It's a, like in line with like what we saw from like Merrill Kelly this year. It's, it, you can't really just look at the percentages. You, you can, but if you're comparing across eras, it works to use the plus stats. They really give you an idea of what it looks like uh, if you neutralize the era context. George Kirby has the highest walk percentage plus, or excuse me, the lowest walk percentage plus of all time. It's 39. If you go to Babe Matthews, it's 40. Matthewson, it's 41. The lower, the better on this particular scale. If your walk percentage plus is higher, it means you're walking more batters. If it's lower, it means you're walking fewer batters. George Kirby's at 39 is the lowest mark of all time. Now, yes, George Kirby has thrown about 280 innings across about 50 starts in his major league career. So is this something we can say is in the record books? No, absolutely not. He's still 25 years old, I believe, 25, 26. Let me just double check that. I think he's 25. Uh, Yeah, he's 25 and a half. Close enough. If he keeps this pace up, he is potentially going to be remembered as the pitcher who has the greatest control we've ever seen in baseball. It's it's a it's a question at this to walk two percent of batters. I don't know how if a lot of the average people listening would even realize like how ridiculous that is, and just go into year by year leaderboards and look at the pitching leaders, look at the strikeout percentage leaders, and you're not seeing <laughs> you're not seeing that number ever. You're seeing typically about six, seven, eight percent. The other low numbers this year. Zach Eflin, 3.5%. Logan Webb, 39 Braxton Garrett at 4%. Those are all, like, they're going to be career-low numbers for these guys. Absolutely elite numbers. And you're chopping another 50% off of it, just about, with George Kirby's number at 2.4%. He is keeping those walks down. That has been the mainstay for him forever. I don't think he walked anybody today. If the strikeout rates start to go up to coincide, not even with the walk rate going down any further, because I don't think he could even get it down anymore. From 2.4%, there's not really much where else to go unless he literally just doesn't walk anybody else ever again. But at this point, with the walk rate where it is, with the strikeout rate climbing and the swinging strike uh, rate climbing as well, that's an important number, swinging strike percentage. You usually take a look at it, and you can double the swinging strike rate, and it's generally going to give you um, what your strikeout rate should be. Swinging strike percentage, it measures the pitcher's, uh, pitcher's hitter's swing and miss that divided by the total pitches thrown by a pitcher. Pretty much just the whiffs. Uh, you know, pitches that were swung and missed that divided by total pitches. You're typically about doubling that number to get what you think the strikeout rate should be. His swinging strike rate in the second half is 14.6%. You know, if you want to double that, 29% strikeout rate. I don't think he's a 29% strikeout rate guy. But even if he's in that 26 to 28% range, 
I think he could be a top five pitcher. I really do. Now, I don't think he'll be drafted as a top five pitcher. It's hard to really know for sure if he's going to make that jump or not. But, man, he has been so lights out in the second half. And I know he gave three runs today. The last start against Kansas City was not ideal. It's going to happen, the odd rough start here and there. If you look at the, you know, the season as a whole for George Kirby, he's been absolutely wonderful. He's been a joy to roster on a number of my teams, and it looks like he's getting better. Even though the ERA, their actual results these last couple times out have not been so great, we've seen the double-digit strikeouts. You know, If we just look back over the last seven starts, the strikeout totals are 10, 9, 7, 5, 7, 2 in his last time out. Not great. And then 9. He's getting you those big strikeout numbers recently, and I, for one, just really hope it's able to keep up because he's one of my favorite young pitchers in all of baseball. But that will do it for us today, guys. I really appreciate everybody hanging out, listening here on this Wednesday. If you guys have not done so already, I'd really appreciate you guys subscribing to the pod and also leaving us a review. If you haven't done so, that would mean quite a bit. Leave us five stars, a couple of nice words. It really helps the algorithm, however the algorithm actually works, to spread the show out like a virus and get everybody out seeing it. So, Appreciate you guys doing that. You can go follow me over on Twitter. I'm at JoeOrico99, at EthosFantasyBB. We post all of our new content over there on the baseball side. And if you're not using Twitter anymore, then please go to SportsEthos.com and check us out over there. But until tomorrow, guys, we're going to talk about some hot players to add. That's what we've been doing on Thursdays, looking across the waiver wires, across the different formats, and seeing who's been performing well, who's still on a lot of waiver wires. But until then, take care, have a great night, and cheers. We'll see you tomorrow. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.